an academic physician saying maybe the, the stethoscope is obsolete, that we have these really cool pocket ultrasound devices that we should teach medical students to use that will pick up heart murmurs and, all, and various other things. It, it was pointed out in that article that that medical uh, residency, even, even some cardiology fellows, miss about half of the murmurs that they ought to be able to hear with a stethoscope. So why don't we just uh, hang up the stethoscope and give everybody these very expensive new things and then we'll, supposedly we'll be up-to-date and advanced and much better off. We have got uh, Dr. Jane Orient with us today. She joins us live. She is she obtained her undergraduate degrees in chemistry and mathematics from the University of Arizona in Tucson. Her MD from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons in 1974. And uh, she is also the author of Your Doctor Is Not In Healthy Skepticism About National Healthcare. And she joins us today here on Skype Audio. So tell us a little bit about your books, my friend. You've got some, um, you've got some pretty cool books out there. And uh, me and Don, I know, are going to have some questions for you. But tell us about your books. Well, the most, most important one really is the fifth edition of Sapira's Art and Science of Bedside Diagnosis by me that was just released a few months ago. And it is very unusual in the, uh, the books available to medical students that goes into great detail about not just the history of the use, use of the stethoscope, but how to use it correctly and how to get the maximum amount of information out of it. It's not just for heart murmurs. And it, it is quite possible that, that uh, students and residents and even fellows are missing murmurs and things. Uh, this may be partly because they never use, learned how to use this wonderful device correctly or simply because they don't take enough time in a quiet room and, or take the time to go through all the special maneuvers to enable them to, to hear what's there to be heard. Uh, Jiggy, if I could jump in here, yes, um, go ahead. if I may, and say uh, thank you, doctor. Um, you know, uh, I'm lucky enough to have some very good doctors who um, rely on the stethoscope because they feel it's part of, of the, um, the, the real way that you can uh, learn about a patient and his or her conditions is to um, to listen not only to the heart but other parts of the body um, and, and the, you know it's funny uh, I didn't know you were coming on but you know all my life all the doctors I've ever, ever dealt with have all said the same thing how important the stethoscope is to their uh, the practice of medicine and here uh, thank you uh, doctor, uh, I'm I'm going to run out and get your book, if nothing else, to learn some more. Thank you. Well, one thing the stethoscope requires you to do is to get close to the patient and touch the patient, and the patient uh, has to cooperate with you to really go through all of these endeavors. And it's not just the heart murmurs that you're listening for. You can listen to all various parts of the body. After I wrote that article, an otoneurologist, you know, a very specialized neurologist, contacted me and said he had diagnosed an arteriovenous fistula, you know, a connection between the art and the brain 
that was causing the patient to have ringing in the ears because the, the patient was, was hearing the, the abnormal blood flow pattern. And he, the doctor could listen to the skull, and he could pick this up, and it would have been missed on a CT scan or even on an MRI, these advanced, uh, these advanced imaging things. But it could be fatal. It could kill the patient by rupturing, and yet it's, it's uh, easily treatable once you know that it's there. Well, you know, we, we, we are faced today with all of these magical um, uh, things uh, to, uh, to help us diagnose and keep ourselves healthy. But uh, uh, I, I gather you feel that the most important is being close to the patient and really looking and talking with the patient. Am I hearing you correctly? Well, that's true. And it's also something that you have accessible to you wherever you are and you can use it frequently. Like how often you, how often can you send the patient to the radiology department to get a, a chest x-ray? But you can listen to him as often as you need to to see how his lungs are coming along and to listen to the heart sounds to see whether he's developing any signs of heart failure. And I found that you can even diagnose things like a hip fracture before it shows up on the x-ray if you combine listening with, you know, a few simple things like tapping on the bones. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to tell you, doctor, uh, I had on my program uh, recently a man uh, from Cornell who's invented a, a toilet seat that, me that measures uh, uh, various heart functions and uh, enables you to have your daily, uh, if you have a heart transplant, et cetera. And I thought that was really cool, but the, then, he, but he said to me at the end of it, "Well, nothing beats a stethoscope," and, and I, I really found that interesting. Well, I really think that's true, and it, it's as I say, it's not just for the heart. And there are things that you can hear there that you might miss altogether if you don't take the time, if you don't have the patient do things to bring out very subtle murmurs that are not always audible. Um, that can be important, like in young athletes who may have a fairly rare condition that could actually cause them to drop dead on the playing field. Um, mm. But you can you can bring out the murmur if you have him do things like squat and stand up and hold his breath and change positions. But you know, doctor, I notice on the various uh, uh, medical programs, like the Good Doctor on ABC, that none of the doctors walk around with a stethoscope. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, I, I remarked to my wife the other night that they none of them had a stethoscope with them. Yeah, I guess that that, that may be true. I, I don't watch the television, or even if they do have the stethoscope, they listen through clothing, they listen very perfunctorily, they may put it on the chest once or twice, but they don't listen to all the lung fields, they don't listen to all the, the parts of the chest where you hear heart sounds or murmurs best. It's uh, it it really is becoming a lost art, and yet it's something that you you can you can do even if you don't have a lot of money, and you don't have a lot of equipment available to you. Hmm. Well, um, uh, you go into the history, but uh, I I know I I've seen some uh, historical stethoscopes in my time. Could you kind of just give us a little background on how it all came about? If, if well, I think call. it used to be just a, t a tube of rolled-up paper that you could uh, put put one end on the patient's chest and the other end in your ear. 
and then it it, it became more sophisticated with a with the two rubber tubes going going to your ear and connecting to the chest piece, which has two parts really. It has a part that's better for high frequency sounds and one that's better for low frequency sounds. There are there are amplifying stethoscopes available now for the doctor who's hard of hearing. Um, but still, it's it's a simple thing. It's just a connection between between your ears and the patient's chest. And the most important part of the stethoscope being the part that's between the, your two ears that you're supposed to be using to uh, think about what you're hearing and about, um, perhaps even more importantly, the history that you heard by taking it firsthand from the patient. Absolutely amazing. Uh, we have got Dr. Jane Orient with us today. She joins us live here on Talk America Live this week. And uh, uh, Don, you, you, you teach uh, journalism, uh, and and are, are you finding that uh, much like with the stethoscope, it's it's a lost art of you know certain tools that that you would think all journalists would have. Are you finding oh, that the same thing that Dr. Orion's finding as well? Well, uh, yeah, in fact, but I'm lucky. Like I say, I'm lucky that, the, my, that, that every doctor that I go to, and I, <laughs> there are a few, um, but they all, first thing they do is go out and check, check me with their stethoscope. Uh, it's kind of reassuring. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if there's a study. I was going to ask now. Uh, our guest, a uh, uh, different question. Yes, what go made, ahead, jump in there. Well, what made you decide to write such a book? Such a book, which, if it's in its fifth edition, then it must be a a very valued book. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to do this? And I know our audience would like to know. Well, I've always been interested in interviewing and physical diagnosis. I mean, those are the main tools that you use to. Uh, approach the patient, and before you just shotgun the patient with all kinds of laboratory tests, you need to focus in on what the possibilities are and what is the most, uh, the most efficient and cost-effective way to figure out what's going on. Uh, the first edition of Sapira was written by Joseph Sapira. Um, well, we worked on it together, and I was the editor um, and author of part of the first edition. He was an academic physician who taught um, internal medicine and was very, very interested in, in these techniques that are much in disuse, like listening and tapping on the chest and combining the listening and the tapping on the chest. And, and the, what, what the early physicians like Glenek, the, the lung sounds that they described. In fact, if you, if you read some old, old books that are about physicians, they will tell how Back in the old days, physicians would listen very, very carefully to the chest and be able to diagnose tuberculosis and tell how it was coming along and exactly what parts of the lungs were affected and, and you know, be very good at prognosticating how, how the patient was, was improving or not. So this has just, it's just been a long-time interest of mine. Well, no, uh, we're we're, uh, we're certainly glad about it. But let me ask you this question: um, Given the the rules of, uh, of uh, the way me medical reimbursement goes, where uh, doctors have sometimes just seven or eight minutes uh, to uh, per patient, 
um, what you're asking is, is in effect, uh, uh, cutting into their time for other things. Um, uh, uh, is there any way of uh, uh, easing the rules so that, that doctors are encouraged to spend more time? I don't see how any doctor can make a good diagnosis on a patient in seven or eight minutes. And it takes that long to introduce yourself and talk to the patient and just find out basic things like how are you, to have the patient get undressed partly or to have time to listen to the patient's question. It's just impossible to do a good job in that amount of time. And I think that if doctors are in a situation where that's where they get paid for, I mean, they get paid for what they input into the computer, all the bullet points and all the things that may be unimportant or have nothing to do with reality or with helping to make the diagnosis. But they're trying to do the impossible, and what doctors need to do is declare independence and get out of the managed care situations in which they, they are on that kind of treadmill. Oh, oh, what? How do you really feel? Thank you, Doctor. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it's something. Uh, uh, you, you know, you hear, you talk to doctors, and they say they want to do a good job, but they're hamstrung by the rules and regulations. And you see pe um, people trying to kind of uh, mash the. Uh, the various parts of our healthcare system, yet we still manage to ha have, in my opinion, the best healthcare system. What do you say to that, uh, Doctor? Well, I think it may be better than other places, but that doesn't mean that it's very good or that it's anywhere like what it could be. And it is certainly more expensive because a lot of the stuff that we call healthcare has gone into this huge $3.8 trillion industry that's mainly shuffling money around um, rather than doing anything that is of value to, to any sick person. So I think that we have a long way to go from improvement to improve. And if we do not restore the patient-physician relationship, then we're we're doing very bad medicine. We're missing a diagnosis. We're doing an appalling job of taking care of patients' real needs. Couldn't agree with you more, uh, uh, doctor, doctor. But uh, let me ask you this. A man who's come up with this new device almost looks like uh, the device that, that appeared in Star Trek, um, uh, you know, where the, uh, the, bone, the doctor could... Uh, scan somebody and uh, t tell what was wrong with him or her. But uh, it, it seems to me, if it was so good, why is it universally adopted? Well, there are lots of, of techno, tech, technical gizmos that are have wonderful capabilities, but generally they're quite limited and they are very expensive. And they're the stethoscope is maybe old, but it is reliable. It is inexpensive. It can be frequently used. It can be used anywhere. Um, you don't have to be in a, a, you know, a tertiary a medical center. I think there, there's a lot of potential in biochemistry and in metabolic profiling that is not being used to the fullest. Uh, but I think as we're going to pitch all our old tools away, from the st just to um, adopt all the latest technical wizardry. Um, and for one thing, we have no 
long-term information on just how this is going to turn out for the patients. Yeah, that's the the real thing, is uh, what's best for the patient. And uh, I just found out an interesting rule is that you can only have one, if you're under in, in Medicare, you can only have one MRI a year. If you want a second one, you got to pay for it yourself. And a lot of people apparently don't do that second MRI, uh, which leads to complications. Uh, I was just told a story uh, yesterday about that, and uh, it scared the daylights out of me. Well, you may develop a condition that's completely new, just after you had your old um, previous MRI, or if you have cancer or something like that, you'd really like to know how things are progressing. Is your treatment making you better, or is or is the cancer just galloping along? And yeah, I think it's often very good to have serial frequent tests. One reason that people don't want to pay for it themselves, of course, is because it is some places outrageously expensive. And yet there are other places where if you shop around and ask how much does this cost, they'll say maybe $350, and you can have it today instead of waiting and waiting and waiting for the insurance company to agree to pay something for it. What they pay may be a deep, dark secret, but it's probably far more than would be obtainable if we had an MRI center on every corner. Very mm, definitely. I, but I found out an interesting thing. In New Jersey, you cannot um, have a blood test unless the doctor orders it. Yet in many states, you can walk in and have a blood test whenever you want it. And the difference in it, price, I, I was just shocked. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's, um, I think that that really is a very bad idea to force you to get a doctor's order for everything. For one thing, you have to pay the doctor. Yes. To write the order. But in Arizona, you can walk into the lab, and they have a menu of tests, and it, the price is there, and you can uh, write your own order. Yes, which makes sense. But, uh, again, this is New Jersey. What can I say? Um, uh, um, I hope uh, <laughs> we have a governor who just said if uh, – if you don't, if you don't, if taxes is an issue with you, you don't belong in this state. So, uh, what can I yeah, tell you? A lot you? of people are deciding they don't belong. <laughs> yes, uh, I don't. I don't mean to jump far, but you sound like such a uh, a knowledgeable person about all of this. Um, if you had your druthers, if you would know that expression, what would you change in the system uh, to make it better? I think we need to get rid of third-party payment. That means we're always somebody else that's paying the bill. There's always a middleman. We need to go back to the days when insurance was like auto insurance and fire insurance. The premium was reasonable. You paid it once or twice a year. You hoped never to have any contact with the insurance company again, and you paid for routine things out of pocket. I think that just filing an insurance claim probably doubles or triples the cost of everything, particularly of things that, that should be really cheap. I mean, why does, why, why does it make any sense whatsoever to have somebody write a check to pay for your flu shot? I mean, it takes just as much t- time and expense to process a $10 claim as a $1,000 claim. So it's ridiculous to have all of these 
these clerks in the middle between you and the doctor, and then they're going to be deciding what you can have and what you can't have. Amen. I was told that uh, 33 cents of every dollar, dollar spent in the health care was for paperwork. Uh, uh, well, it may be more than that, actually. Plus, there are all kinds of perverse incentives. If you have paid a huge premium every single month for your medical insurance, well, of course you want to get your money's worth. <laughs> so naturally, you want insurance to cover everything. But if you kept that money in your pocket, I really think we should price things in units like um, percentage of your monthly insurance premium. It would make most medical care look very cheap, and you're going to be asking yourself, why am I paying those guys that amount of money for something I hope never to use? I couldn't agree with you more. Um, what do you think about HSAs? Oh, I think they're a wonderful idea. But the problem is that the instant they were enacted, the special interests started piling on and setting up such regulations that gave the managed uh, care industry much more control over them. It greatly limited their usefulness to patients. And so they were really crippled from the start. We really ought to have, have everybody have the right to the same tax advantages for any way they pay for their medical care, not just if they get it through an employer-owned insurance plan. And then you have catastrophic insurance reasonably priced for the really big-ticket items. Everything else comes out of your medical savings account, which should have the same tax advantage as you know union members now get through their employer-sponsored plans. I couldn't agree with you more. It shocked me to find out that the average deductible now is close to the amount that you uh, uh, that is the the beginning point for HSAs. So uh, well, it used to be that a high deductible plan like that would be very inexpensive, and it was the economically sensible thing for everybody to buy. Just the savings and premiums would pay your deductible. But now you've got both sky-high premiums and a sky-high deductible, and that's because of, these, because of the Affordable Care Act, the Unaffordable Care Act, really, that piles on all of these minimum essential benefits, these, these mandates that you have to pay for, whether they're really of value to, or not, along with this guaranteed issue of community rating plan, which means the insurance company cannot rate you by your risk, but is forcing you to pay for people who were far more expensive. You know, they, they didn't buy insurance before they were sick. They have all kinds of lifestyle problems. Um, and so you were being forced to pay for bad risks. Just like if, you, if they did that to automobile insurance, you would be paying extra for drunk drivers. Mm. Absolutely. You, you are right on about that. Um, be, before we go further, please tell uh, us the name of your book again and, and um, uh, where people can get it. It's Sapira's, S-A-P-I-R-A, apostrophe S, Art and Science of Bedside Diagnosis. And it's published by Walters Kluwer, W-O-L-T-E-R-S-K-L-U-W-E-R. They have a website. You can also get it on Amazon. 
I, I think it's so important. Do you think that the, um, uh, you know, I, I remember the, the doctors of my youth. I, I'm 76, so I go back a, a ways. And when they came to the house and they had a, a manner, uh, a bedside manner, and we, we seem to have lost that uh, approach. Uh, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right. We have, and that's because the doctor is usually working for somebody other than the patient. He's working for the insurance company. And whether he gets paid or not depends on what he writes on that claims form. Whether you like it or not, or whether you're helped or not, really doesn't make very much difference. And the doctor's under a lot of pressure to conform to what the insurance company wants and to process enough patients through to to collect enough money. But there are doctors who now have direct primary care practices. It's called. Uh, they are many of them will make house calls. Many of them will be available to you um, when you need them instead of saying, well we've got an appointment three months from now. You really need to be looking for a doctor who's who's working for you and not the insurance company. Well, I'm into that as well. Um, I, I, I'm very fortunate to have um, my two primary doctors are, are like that, and it's really uh, it's really a joy to go into their office. It's a joy to, to work with them. Uh, I'm a, a long time diabetic, so you can tell that I need an extra. Uh, so, uh, what is TLC? A little bit of t- tender loving care. And they do give it. It's a, it's amazing. Um, well, doctors who are working for their patients and the patients paying them, um, it's a mutual thing. The doctor's glad to see the patient. The patient's glad to see the doctor. They value each other. Whereas if you're just an, another, you know, another, another number that has to be rushed through that day, it's different. Well, it's interesting. Um, my doctor only accepts Medicare, and. Uh, uh, he accepts Medicare patients, uh, and I might say he's on Fifth Avenue uh, in in New York City, but uh, uh, it it doesn't seem that he does anything but take enough time to make sure that he and he always asks at the end, "Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to talk about?" That alone is worth the visit, because sometimes you're hesitant to tell a doctor something. But when he asks, I'm sorry, you please, you talk. No, no, that's a very important question that doctors should always ask, and it sounds like you found a real treasure. Oh, I, I couldn't. Uh, I, I Believe me, I, I, uh, I really do. And what's more, he's younger than me, so probably, hopefully he'll have a practice uh, up until the time I don't need him. Um, uh-huh. but, but it's been... Um, but uh, but the time it took to find them when my other doctor died um, uh, and what I went through uh, t- told me a lot. We And uh, and I live uh, very short, uh, close to New York City, so I'm open to, the mo- to some of the best doctors in the world. But uh, um, let, let me ask you a different question, which is uh, a little bit loaded. But... Um, uh, I had a condition that uh, doctors could not find. I was getting uh, fevers, etc., and for three, three to five years, I couldn't find an answer. And I went to the uh, Mayo Clinic, 
and they found found the answer in a two-hour uh, session and uh, um, found the solution. Well, there there are certain places like the Mayo that, to me, seem to be, uh, find, uh, take on the tough cases. Would you like to comment on that at all? Well, I think that, yes, there are some excellent facilities that uh, come up with diagnoses that uh, other people had failed to reach, and I think that is one of the one of the treasures that we have in the United States or in a place where there is free enterprise and their patients do have the ability to, to seek a second opinion from the doctor that they want instead of the one that they're assigned to. In Canada, they even have a lottery to get signed up with a family physician and you may dare not disagree with your family physician because if he kicks you out, you may not be able to find another one, and you can't get in to see a specialist without a referral from that primary care doctor. So mm. I think if you're in Canada and you want to go someplace like Mayo, you have to come to the United States. Oh, well, what I found interesting that there were three floor, there were four uh, on their on their channel, they're in hospital channels with four channels of uh, uh, in Arabic. Uh, there and there were three floors in which uh, were uh, financed by Arab countries. So I guess they all know to come there when something happens rather than Europe. Uh, and I always found that interesting. And it should tell you something, shouldn't it? <laughs> should tell uh, people around the world. You know, um, uh, uh, this is an, enjoy an enjoyable time with me, but I want to make sure that. Our audience learns more about you. Um, uh, are you still practicing, doctor? I, I do still have a small practice. It's totally third-party free. Um, I'm not enrolled in Medicare. I'm quite willing to see Medicare patients, but they cannot get any reimbursement for Medicare if they see me. So I think I, think I keep my fees reasonable, and patients know ahead of time what they're looking at. So. So that, uh, you know, you're not necessarily the most popular girl in the school if people have to pay to see you. But on the other hand, if you're not worth anything, maybe people don't want to see you anyway. Right. Well, but it's sometimes, the, um, given the, uh, I remember when a doctor's visit was $2.50. And I have to tell you, my mother couldn't afford it. She had a bad back. And uh, one of her co-workers gave her the money to go to see the doctor. Um, and then, uh, obviously, this is 1948, but um, uh, now uh, it's the, the rates are are astronomical, and uh, uh, to do a procedure is sometimes five thousand dollars. Well, it depends. It it doesn't need to be that much. Well, for one thing, of course, two dollars and fifty cents. Um, it would be probably worth it'd, ten times as much today. Now the, the dollar has lost that much value. Yeah. But you know, you can find if you can find out what things cost. There are people who are really quite reasonable and quite good, and the cost is not necessarily a measure of the quality. Sometimes the highest quality things are the lowest price. You just really have to look around. Yes. Um. 
Uh, JD, do you want us to jump in over here? Well, uh, Doctor Orient, you've got uh, some some incredible books here. Um, what, what are some of your goals for your books? Goals for the books? Well, yes. I I guess I I got infected with a with a chronic disease a few decades ago, and I can't stop writing. It's just it's like an illness. I have to do it. So it's not. I write what I have to write. I write what seems important and message that I think people ought to ought to hear. That's that's all. That's the only goal is to communicate what I think is important. Fantastic. We have got uh, Dr. Jane Orient with us today. She has got some incredible books. Uh, she has written a piece that we have on our website about stethoscopes and uh, so. You know, what with with technology and the way things are going, uh, do you think we're ever gonna get to the point where the uh, where people don't use a stethoscope, don't use some of these different things? Are we headed that direction? Oh, I think that we may be, especially since the young students do not have the opportunity to learn, although there are all kinds of excellent uh, AIDS these days, recordings of heart sounds that you can study on your own, but if you spend all your time in the hospital, stuck in a conference room looking at a computer, and you very seldom see a real-life patient who might have something that would that's interesting to listen to, then you know, these skills will atrophy, and that's one reason why I've kept working on Sapira's Art and Science of Bi- Di- Bedside Diagnosis for all these years, is even though it's, it's not as popular the most popular thing, it sells better in India actually than here, it is to to keep alive this this information that was you know that was acquired over the years by by the very dedicated and, and uh gifted people. Uh Jiggy, can I jump in here? Yes, you you, go brought, ahead. you brought up a very interesting point. I remember when I was covering Africa that uh, just about every doctor that I ever encountered always had the stethoscope around his or her neck. And uh, uh, I, re- I remember in this uh, uh, village, and I forget what country, where, where uh, the, the doctor said it was the, only, it was the only instrument she had left in her uh, uh, bag of tricks. But she said it was oftentimes enough. Um, I, I I hadn't remembered that until the, you mentioned about about the fact. Why do you think it uh, um, uh, it sells so well in India? I I don't know. I guess people do do learn English there. They're not uh, stuck with just one language like we are here. And there are many many well trained physicians in India, and a lot of these physical diagnostic tools are, as you say, the only things that are accessible to the doctors. Well, um, is, is your book also available as an e-book or does it, uh, only as a uh, printed book? If you buy the printed book, you have access to the e-book that you can install on various devices. Mm. Well, that makes sense because it, it seems no, no one, uh, no doctor I've, uh, I've run across over the years uh, uh, in recent years, has a book. They all seem to have these pads or, or uh, uh, 
uh, other devices and uh, always referring to that. Um, uh, do you think that uh, also helps to break down the usage of the stethoscope? Oh, I I think that that um, you can learn learn about the stethoscope from an iPad, same as from a printed book. I think that just people are learning to disdain things that are simple and and to put more faith in technology than it really is worth. Like one of the things there is in the book is examples of diagnoses that were made by people with simple observation and hands-on things that, that would were missed by fancy MRI scans. Well, I know my doctor makes me walk every time and look at how I walk and sometimes make a diagnosis. I have a bad back. And he can, uh, uh, he, uh, he says, well, you got this, this, and this wrong. And uh, and the uh, MRI proves it. But uh, I, I'm always amazed. I, uh, of course, he's experienced, but I'm always amazed. So I guess the, there's another example for you. Well, that we do. Uh, the book does go into gait disorders and things like that too. It tells of this one very famous neurologist who had his his um, his examining room at the end of the hall, and he made the diagnosis just listening to the patient walk down the hall. That's amazing. Um, you, you know, uh, uh, someone said that uh, um, being a medical doctor sometimes is the black art. Because you're you're really depending on your experience. What do you say to that? I think it's both an art and a science. That that there are aspects of both, and you really need both of them. But um, but then again, we seem to be also a nation where we're we're asking doctors to uh, specialize rather than be a, a general physician. Aren't there some uh, and I, I don't want to be quoted because I can't remember, but I thought I read that that doctors are not becoming general uh, uh, general doctors, but rather specialists more and more. Oh, I think that that's that's a function of this third party payment system. That uh, general physicians are not worth much in the eyes of the insurance company, and they they prefer to replace them with mid level practitioners with much less training and the the doctors are on such a treadmill that they can't really practice their art the way that it should be practiced so their their life is so very frustrating that uh, but with the re, with the development of these direct primary care things i think we'll see more and more physicians wanting to get back to that kind of practice hmm. Well, I'll go go in another direction because I have a friend of mine who founded ELAM, which is a, um, a program to teach uh, um, uh, women doctors how to become administrators and to grow inside uh, medical schools and hospitals. Um, and, and she was doing; she's just retiring for twenty years. But what have you noticed the different? If you haven't noticed any difference in and uh, how women are entering and managing in the medical field uh, over the over the course of your uh, career, well, there are many more women 
in medicine now than they used to be. Only about 10% of my medical class was was women, and now they're at least half. And they they have different requirements to, uh, you know, the, do other demands in their family life, and maybe they put more value on important things like their children instead of climbing the career ladder. So they do have they do have different priorities. They have a different different approach. I mean, they're just men and women are different. Thank God. Uh, um, uh, uh, in a positive sense, I, I meant it. But uh, but let me ask you the question: uh, uh, having children and, and being mindful of children uh, oftentimes impedes the career of uh, female doctors. Is there any way we can uh, alleviate the situation, in your opinion? Well, I think that medicine is a calling. It's a vocation. I think we shouldn't look upon it as a career where you climb up the ladder and you get more responsibility and less and less contact with patients. But I think women physicians um, do very, very well. As physicians, um, maybe they are less inclined to do administration, but that's that's a good thing. So I think that we, we're just too focused on the status symbols and the trappings that come along with a career, and we've forgotten what, what medicine is really about. Well, that, that's an interesting point. I, I was talking to my doctor about that, and, uh, um, and his feeling was that many doctors seem uh, not to... Think of it as a, not as a, a calling, but rather as a means to a financial end. And uh, he was a little worried about that. Uh, what do well, we that's say how that? you see it. Then you're probably going to be really unhappy in medicine because it's no longer a guarantee of having a stable and lucrative practice. Well, why do you say that, if I may ask? Well, because you are dependent on third-party insurers, and they're all interested in the bottom line, and they're cut, 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 cutting at uh, physician pay, and especially if you're an independent practice, and half of what of the revenue that comes in is spent on your overhead. If they cut your revenue by 10%, it cuts your pay by 20%. There are more and more regulations that you have to comply with. Insurance is more and more expensive. Um, and doctors are really susceptible to pressures that they're actually going to be out the door if they don't, if they're not productive enough from the stamp, the insurance company's standpoint, or if they don't comply with what the insurer wants them to do. Mm. So doctors really are, are kind of stressed out um, as far as even being able to keep a job. Well, we all seem to be. Do you also think that? Um, uh, I read a statistic that um, problems with drug addiction and alcoholism amongst doctors is, seems to be increasing. And someone said it's really because it's, we're finally talking about it. What do you say to that? Oh, I think it, it is increasing. Also, physician suicides are increasing. Physician burnout is increasing. And I think this is a new problem that comes along with this corporate medicine. And this doctor's on the on the treadmill, t- treating the electronic medical record instead of their patients. Well, 
<laughs> I'm glad Jiggy brought you on this program. <laughs> <laughs> this has definitely been a uh, interesting topic here. We've got uh, Dr. Jane Orient with us today, and uh, Dawn. She is just a wealth of information, my friend. <laughs> yes, and more importantly, she's willing to share it. I know I'm getting an education. I hope our audience is as well. It's so, it's so much nicer to have someone like yourself talking about these issues. You know, the, the politicians all talk about it, but uh, they seldom seem to even approach solutions. Well, if you if you had a chance to talk to to Congress or the president, what would you uh, tell them to do? Get the government out of medicine. These politicians make promises, but they have no understanding of what's going on. Yeah, but, but it seems that uh, uh, the Democratic candidates seem not not want to get out. They seem to want to go further in. Uh, well, they want to get rid of private medicine, private insurance. They want all doctors um, dependent on the government, which means all patients are dependent on the government. They promise them everything for free, but the patients just haven't figured out that if it's not there, they can't have it. They won't get a bill, but they won't get any care either. <laughs> I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, uh, when I was in Denmark uh, with my mother, uh, something um, she fell, and the, the care was first rate and everything. But, the, but as I was leaving, the nurse said to me, yes, that's because she was a foreign visitor. But it would not be the case if she was a, a Danish citizen. And uh, um, I didn't know at the time what she meant by it, but now I do. If, uh, I, I just feel strongly that if we had a one-party system, uh, we'd all lose. Um, it's called Monopoly. Don't you remember that game you played as kids? <laughs> You know, what happens when you don't have any competition and you're not accountable and people have no choice but to come to you? Mm -hmm. Then the game, uh, the game becomes no longer uh, no becomes fun. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, many years ago, I, I covered a, uh, uh, an incident where uh, uh, one player uh, attacked another player uh, over a monopoly. I never forgot that story. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, the, there's so many questions I want to ask you without putting a, uh, putting you on the spot. Um, but but it, it seems to me that w w in order to almost uh, we almost have to go back uh, to to square one with everything and start all over, which would be very difficult to happen. How do you think you could accomplish that? Well, the APS plan, which is on our website, APSonline.org, proposes, why don't we have freedom for all instead of Medicare for all, that we, we can't really just collapse the system without causing slaughter and carnage. But why don't we give people the option to get out? And if we have a free market developing, if we have people free to practice where they want to practice, patients free to see the doctor that they want and find out that, you know, dealing with people one-on-one -on -one is not only much, much more fun, but it's much more economical, 
that I think that the free market will develop and eventually people are just going to to um, escape from the socialist trap. But And it, it's just like in in East Germany where they had to have a wall to keep people stuck in East Berlin. If you let them out, they'll go. <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. Uh, it, 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 uh, Will you repeat the website so I can write it down and our guests and our audience can write it down? Okay, it's aapsonline.org. That's for the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, aapsonline.org. And how are they versus the American Medical Association, which is, seems to be diametrically opposed to what you're saying? Uh, I think you got it right there. The AMA is in cahoots with the government. They make their their multi-million dollar revenue by um, contracts with the government. And your organization, what does it do? Uh, uh, I have to admit, I, I was not aware of it until just now. So please we tell defend, us a little bit. We defend private Hippocratic medicine. We were founded in 1943. We, um, not all of our, our members are in private medicine, but all of them do support the idea that, that the patient-physician relationship is extremely important, it comes first, that the patient should be ahead of everything else. And we provide all kinds of tools to help doctors uh, who are in independent practice. Hmm. I'm, 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 I'm gonna look at your, your website when we finish this program. Because uh, uh, I certainly believe in what you're doing. I, I think a lot of our audience will as well. Well, you know, we have just a few minutes left. What would you like to leave our audience with? I think that your your audience needs to understand the importance of having a physician who is working for the patient's best interest and not someone who is subject to the government or the corporation or the third-party insurer, all of whom are have some goal other than the patient's best interest, saving money for themselves while bringing in a maximum amount of premiums, and and really they they want to make all of the medical decisions taking it out of the hands of the patients. Patients need to take back their care. This means they also need to take back their money. And that's why I think medical savings accounts are really important or just not turning all your money over to an insurance company, but, but using the old fashioned ways of saving and, uh, and spending frugally. Well, you know, uh, you know, this is the uh, sign-up period, and we're in it right now. And I went to a, a, a meeting about uh, uh, Medicare Advantage, and uh, my eyes were open to the fact that um, um, th there are uh, six or seven different me Medicare supplement uh, supplemental plans, and that uh, uh, <laughs> I have to confess, I still don't understand them because every once in a while they'll say, I have my drug plan, I've got to pay more, or this one I can't do. And I've never quite understood the regulations. And when I asked someone from the insurance company, she admitted that neither did she. 
we live in a complicated world. Well, it's deliberately complicated so that you can't figure it out. And you maybe ask, I know Medicare Advantage is managed care. They have narrow networks. They make all kinds of decisions for you. Uh, they want to attract healthy people. They really don't like sick people. Um, and the Medicare supplements are, you really want to look at those carefully because they are very expensive. And if you look at what they pay for, um, it may be very disappointing. Like one, one of my colleagues said the one year they had a really, really bad year. His wife required a coronary artery bypass surgery that they paid more in premiums that year than that insurance company actually paid out for her care. I can believe it. Well, but I also I learned that some policies, you have to pay $150 a day for your first five days in the hospital, and after that, they pay it up to 30 days, then you pay more. And and I didn't realize that. I For some reason, I have a G, which is a, the best plan. I don't pay anything, but I don't get the advantage of having my hearing aid paid for or my eyeglasses paid for. It's just a weird world. And uh, it got weirder. Well, it's all set up for the benefit of somebody besides you. <laughs> I'm afraid you're right. And the next time, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still undecided what to do. And, uh, um, and I've, I've had two or three people. So uh, you are so right, Doctor. It's... Uh, it, it's a mess, and it doesn't look as if it's going to get any easier, at least not until uh, after the uh, coming election. And well, the coming my... election could be a disaster. Yes. We get a, 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 a dedicated socialist in power. <laughs> well, well, what really frustrates me is I hear the people talk about everything they're going to spend, but I don't hear anybody talking about uh, cutting taxes. You know? Well, it, you know, when they say what they spend, first they got to take it. I think we really should focus on what they're going to take. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Right, Jiggy? Oh, totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> now, um, Do Dr. Orient, before we let you go, my friend, how do we find you online and uh, get involved with you and get your books? Um, the APS website is aapsonline.org. And my book is The Pyrus Art and Science of Bedside Diagnosis. And you can find that just by putting in the search engine or going to Amazon. Now, uh, Don, uh, give us some, some plugs here, my friend. I know that you're involved well, with a lot of different organizations. Well, you know, the National Robotics Education Foundation, the-nref.org. You know, that's the one uh, didn't, the closest to my heart. DonMazzella.com and uh, 2SB Digest. And those are the other ones. Uh, and I want to thank the doctor for, for being on the program. You, you, you reaffirm my faith in my doctors and hopefully reaffirmed our faith in, in doctors in general. Because with, okay, with, well. with people like you, there's always hope. Yes. Yes. There's always hope. Well, I thank you for allowing me to visit with you. Yes, yes, definitely. And uh, we will talk to you very soon, Dr. Orient. And Don, we will talk to you next week. Thank you, my friend. 
You've got it. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. There they go. Don Mazzella and Dr. Jane Orient. And that will wrap it up here for Talk America Live. And uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>